This is episode 96 of Alohomora for August 9th, 2014. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to our global reread of Harry Potter. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Caleb Graves. And our special guest today is a fellow MuggleNet staffer, Allison Sigurd, but you may know her as Allie Wood around the Alohomora realm. Hey, Allison, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys, how's it going? Most excellent. Thanks for coming back to uh, join us for another chapter. Yeah, I love being man. I know, you can't get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't want to. (laughs) So tell us why, or tell the listeners, I suppose, why you wanted to join us for this chapter. Well, I don't think it's really a secret that Order of the Phoenix is probably not my favorite Harry Potter book. Um, (laughs) Kind of at the bottom of my list. I just have a serious problem with angsty Harry despite all he's been through. It just annoys me. Um, But the one thing I really do love about this book is the creation of Dumbledore's army. And since that's what chapter we're on, it's a perfect time to be on. Excellent. And I guess that's a perfect segue for me to remind the listeners out there that we are talking about chapter 18 this week, Dumbledore's army. So read it before you listen and it'll be a more enjoyable experience. But before we do that, we're going to take a step back and look at some of your comments for when we discussed chapter 17, which now is actually two weeks ago because we just got back from LeakyCon. And before we get into the comments, I thought we'd just quickly talk about how what, how did you think of LeakyCon? Was it awesome? What, Michael, you had a lot of costumes. How did that go? Ugh. <laughs> it's, it's so nice not to be wearing like five layers <laughs> anymore and, and, and out of the the humidity of Florida, but you know, it was totally worth it. I have no regrets because being able to go to the, um, this was my first time even at Universal Studios. I've never been to that park. Um, and to go to the wizarding world of Harry Potter, I did, I did it two days. One day I was just me as a Hufflepuff student. And the last day I was dressed as 19 years later, Harry. Um, and it was just an incredible experience to feel so fully immersed in the world of Harry Potter. Uh, just unfor- absolutely unforgettable experience. And then with the convention on top of that, um, I didn't get much sleep. That's the best way to summarize it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's no- that's the a, norm. Yeah. Yep. Most yep. people. The pictures looked awesome, though, of Michael's costumes that I saw. Yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. And we were talking about it earlier. Michael's featured in a BuzzFeed article of cosplay from LeakyCon, so you should check it out. He's dressed up as my guy from the Lego movie. I love Emmett. Everything is awesome. <laughs> I had so many people yelling me, yelling that at me, like as just as I'm walking down the hall. So that was Emmett was actually probably the most unexpected reception for a costume. I was pretty sure people weren't even gonna know or care, but that one was the one that got probably the best reception out of all. And then the rest of them were Harry Potter costumes, and people were like, "Oh yeah, we know those." Well, that movie so, has like a crazy following, so it does now. Yeah. Plus, it's out of the norm. <laughs> So yes, I guess that makes sense. something unusual. So. Right, exactly. And we did get to meet some of you guys at our live show, so that was super awesome. Thanks for coming to join us. But now we're back to hitting the audio waves. Without pizza. No Without pizza. pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly. All right, so our first comment from our discussion on Chapter 17 is on the topic of Dumbledore and um, 
not ha- choosing to hire Snape for Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. And this is from Dolphin Patronus on the main site. I don't think Dumbledore hired disposable Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers intentionally. If that were the case, why would he have hired Lupin? He seemed to like Lupin well enough. Why, why would he hire him thinking he might die? I think Dumbledore's reasons for not giving Snape the job sooner are simply trying to avoid putting Snape in a tempting situation. He needs Snape around for his plan to work. Even though the job is to teach to defend against the dark arts, it's still exposure to the dark arts in some form. I think giving a reformed Death Eater that job would be like hiring a recovering alcoholic to teach a bartending course. (laughs) It's just too much temptation. And then a quick follow-up comment. Um, Stone Hollows talked... Stone Hallows? I don't know why I said it like that. Stone Hallows on on the forum said, I think there's another reason behind Dumbledore not giving Snape the Defense Against the Dark Arts job yet. He doesn't want to seem too trusting. With Snape working as a double agent, even if Albus was completely convinced without a shred of a doubt that Snape was now his man, he wouldn't want to display that to the world, and especially not to Voldemort. Yeah, I'm I'm more in agreement with Dolphin Patronus in that... I think because Dumbledore is, as we find out, pretty acutely aware that there is an actual curse. He seems to be the only one who knows, since he knows that Voldemort placed it, whereas everybody else kind of spreads it around like a rumor, um, where nobody's entirely sure that it's an actual curse. Um, And to put Snape in that position when Snape is such an important player in his plans, uh, obviously he finally puts him in that position when he knows he needs Snape to leave. Um, cause he has year, uh, year six, Harry's year six is very, very carefully planned out by Dumbledore. Um, so yeah, I would, I would think he was just saving that for later. Do we know when Dumbledore finds out about the curse? I'm I don't sure. think so. I don't think so. He, I know he knows. I just don't know when he, maybe, I mean, cause <clears throat> Voldemort essentially casts it when he leaves after an attempt at getting an interview, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so that's and, a long line of one-year stints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, notwithstanding that Dumbledore would probably figure it out after a time. Right. Uh, because he's smarter than everybody else, as he always says. Uh, he does seem to have a pretty, as headmaster, he does seem to have a very close relationship with Hogwarts itself. He seems to be a little more in the know about things at Hogwarts than other people anyway. Um, yeah. So maybe there's a way that the castle actually could inform him of that situation. Mm. All right, so the next comment <clears throat> comes on a lesser discussed point, but I still thought it was pretty interesting, and it's on the topic of the Gryffindor girls' uh, dormitory slide, like when the stairs turn to a slide <laughs> when the boys try to climb it, and this is from Accio Potassium on the main site. In this chapter, we were introduced to the secret defense mechanism of the girl- Gryffindor girls' dormitory. The philosophy of the staircase seems to be similar to that of an adult unicorn, in which the unicorn distrusts the masculine persona based on slightly true stereotypes of men. However, there is an important detail which needs to be discussed. How does the slightly sexist staircase detect the individual <laughs> sex of a person? Uh, no. Where's Noah right now? Oh, gosh. Could the insentient staircase be judging its decision solely on the appearance of a person. If so, the staircase has some controversial problems, <laughs> and this method has some has some major flaws in its protection. What if a young woman has a more masculine appearance? 
would the staircase falsely reject this individual as being a man? What is stopping a male from just changing their appearance with polyjuice potion or self-transfiguration into a woman? Whoa. Oh, no. I love that he just, like, takes it so far. Like, let's ask these questions. Right. I love it. Hmm. DNA. (laughs) I wonder if if it comes down to, like, a name thing, maybe? Um, not necessarily, because, I mean, it's, it's a staircase. I can't see who's walking up there. Maybe it's something have, having to do with, you know, because, like, the quill, when a magical person is born, their name gets written down. So maybe it's something having to do with that book, and the stairs know who's supposed to be in the dormitory and who's not. I don't know. I don't think it sees, though. I don't think it's on appearance, personally. Hmm. Essentially, this question is raising the issue of if somebody of transgender went to yeah, Hogwarts. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's mm-hmm. it's go it, it's kind of touching on that without saying it, mm-hmm. um, which I don't even know how to examine that because Rowling hasn't given any insight into that. I mean, she has the one thing she has said at least about uh, homosexual individuals in the community, which is not the same as transgender, but it's the closest thing she said to it is that wizards don't really care about that kind of stuff because they've already got their own in built-in prejudices towards other things like half-bloods and mud-bloods as they call them etc um so they don't really take these kind those kinds of things into account apparently according to her um but hogwarts and the the idea of the staircase and hermione even says it is a very antiquated idea um and that shows a, a bias towards gender so i don't I have to wonder if that would present a problem in that case. And, and as far as students taking polyjuice potion or self-transfiguring, or if you had, say, like a metamorphmagus like Tonks, um, who would be a case like that, because uh, 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 as far as I can tell, based on the rules of that, she could swap genders if she so desired. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't really know. The only thing that's even remotely address this oddly enough is the lego harry potter games (laughs) (laughs) because there are certain areas you can't get into unless you're a different gender but usually it's a portrait and the portrait will like when harry and ron have to go into the girl's bathroom to rescue hermione the portrait won't let them in because they're boys so they have to go make a polyjuice potion and harry turns into a girl like it just switches his lego hair to girl lego hair and then it lets him in Um, (laughs) maybe the staircase is just like somehow connected to the sorting so when girls get sorted into different houses like the stairs like in the different houses i'm sure there are similar or parallels where the girls of that house and maybe only staff members are able to get up it and just anyone else isn't so by default boys can't get up it that would make sense yeah i mean that's that's yeah, kind of what I was touching on, but mm-hmm. with the sorting hat, that makes sense. That I think if sense. there was a, an, a case of a transgender student, though, because that is what the question is presenting, really, I I think that the we have seen that the teachers do bend over backwards to make things work for students, um, as evidenced by Lupin. Um, so I would like to think that they would do everything they could to make something work if the staircase was being unruly. Um I'm sure they have ways to get around those charms or make exceptions for the magic. Even, I mean, it, it, the one thing I can only think of to reference that's in the books in canon is when Flitwick actually talks to the doors 
and teaches them to recognize Sirius Black. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you can talk to the doors, maybe you can have a chat with the stairs too. <laughs> just when you're lonely. <laughs> I just like that um, Acupotassium called it the slightly sexist staircase. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's going great. on a t-shirt. Oh, yeah. It should. it should, actually. That's a good one. All right. And the last comment comes on the topic of Luna and Hermione being metaphors for faith and skepticism. And this comes from She Flew Like a Madman on the forums. My knee-jerk reaction to the idea of Luna and Hermione as metaphors for faith and skepticism, and just to be clear, Luna being the metaphor for faith and Hermione for skepticism, was to reject it, but the more I think about it, the more likely it seems. Luna is so deeply associated with the big mysteries of the Potter world, which Hermione understandably has little to no handle on, primarily death and the possible existence of an afterlife. This is queued up, of course, by her ability to see Thestrals indicating that she has already ha- she already has a unique perspective on something Harry is only just beginning to understand. By the end of the year, Luna reveals that marvelous, unflinching certainty she has that she will see her loved ones again. The fact that this is borne by events in Deathly Hallows, when Harry actually does see his loved ones again, cements the idea that spiritual face in the Potterverse is a good thing, which is unsurprising given Joe's beliefs. For all the nonsense she spouts, Luna has a great deal of wisdom for one so young, and it's all based on faith. It's actually very important to introduce this character and this idea into the books, because it explains how Harry is later able to make such great leaps of faith. If he'd never met someone like Luna, he'd never, he'd never have had that evidence that trusting your instincts can work out. Sure, his instincts turned out to be right when he was telling Lupin to go back to Tonks, but trusting your gut is much more difficult when the stakes are as high as they are at the end of Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. That was a very good, very loaded response. Yeah, I just like I, I really like that it points out in a way that I guess we haven't really talked about since we're just now getting to Luna, obviously, but definitely I hadn't thought about before why Luna is so important to Harry and his journey. Hmm. I've, you know, we, we kind of touched on this with a previous podcast question of the week. Um, and more specifically in how Hermione and Luna kind of are at odds with one another Mm. versus how they, um, how they, how they affect characters outside of each other. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that's exactly it as, uh, she flew like a madman said, it's, it's that her, that Luna is meant to give this i think harry already has kind of that a mind for theorizing as we see in a lot of the books because hermione is the one who often shoots down his theories ron even has more of a mind for that i think um but i i I think that it's right to say that luna gives him that kind of ability to be comfortable with kind of going on blind faith as we will definitely see i mean it does start here but we will definitely see it in deathly hallows um it becomes extremely important to harry's final journey and quest to make sure that he believes in things that don't have any proof especially when hermione is right there saying no that can't be right yeah and i've always said that you know this book is super important for harry there's a lot of lessons that he learns about himself in this book that you know, as she flew like a madman, had pointed out that he wouldn't, if he didn't learn these lessons in this book, he wouldn't have been able to do the things that he had to do later on. And Luna is a huge part of that. So I 
completely agree with this entire comment. It's perfect. I'm not sure, though. I think... I don't think he quite goes to the extent Luna does. I feel like Hermione and Luna being such opposites, they meet in the perfect middle with Harry because Luna has such blind faith in everything. But Hermione needs proof. But I think we see Harry finds if he has some connecting proof, for example, with the resurrection stone, well, he's seen the cloak, he's seen the, he's seen the wand. So why shouldn't he think that the stone is going to do the same thing? So I think Harry kind of balances the two out almost between their Mm -hmm. extremes. Yeah. I think, I think Luna helps Harry see the things that he might not be quite ready to see or willing to see. And Hermione kind of helps him stay grounded from Luna. You're right. Yeah. Perfect mix right in the middle. Yeah, that's thanks for those comments, guys. There's a ton more, a lot of great thoughts, even branching off some of these. So be sure to check those out on the main site and in the forums. And before we move on to Chapter 18 this week, we're going to look back two weeks uh, to that podcast question of the week that I believe was presented by Eric. Eric was uh, pondering about Professor Binns, a character that we kind of rarely give some thought to. So... The question is, in this chapter, as Harry struggles to bring aid to his injured owl, Professor Binns grants his leave by addressing him as Perkins. This seemingly random name is shared by Arthur Weasley's co-worker. Just what similarity, if any, does Harry share with Arthur's cube mate, and what world is Professor Binns in that he makes this naming blunder? I should note that many of you pointed out that this is a very similar theory to the whole Mark Evans situation we had in this book, um, where we heard a familiar surname and made a lot of assumptions based on it. So a lot of you seem to enjoy going back to that mentality again. And the first suggestion we had was from Surprisingly Swishy, who said, perhaps it has nothing to do with Arthur's co-worker at all. What if Bins lost the ability to learn new names when he died? So he just reuses names from the last class he ever had. What if he doesn't even realize this is a new class and just wants to know why Perkins dyed his hair and when he got rid of that horrible wart? I think a bigger question is what's going to happen in 100 or 200 years when Binns is still teaching and has no idea about any recent history. Will Hogwarts students never learn about the Battle of Hogwarts or Voldemort at all? It would be like history teachers today never mentioning the World Wars. Not to say that students shouldn't study the Goblin Rebellions. But recent history is perhaps the most important part of history in regards to making decisions about the current world. And a lot of this, I should note, came from uh, a lot of this particular theorizing, uh, because there were a lot more comments similar to this, that perhaps Professor Binns and his lessons are stuck in stasis, comes from Rowling's mention on Pottermore about ghosts not being able to learn very much more past what they already know after they've died. Right, and I love I, when I, I love this when I was reading through. Um, I think this is completely plausible because he's probably he probably didn't write any new notes. He's probably yeah, exactly reading from all of his old notes and thinking it's all the same students. I mean, he didn't realize that he died, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he probably doesn't realize much of anything. <laughs> well, he's a ghost. He doesn't have to sleep or eat or anything. So how does he know how much time has passed necessarily? Right. Right. Well, yeah, and that that got into a bigger question that definitely branched off in the comments that I didn't pick any for because they went a little too far off of the main question. But it does go into the idea of 
um, how ghosts operate even more in Rowling's world because a lot of people are asking because they've heard there, you know, there are theories about ghosts that, <clears throat> that perhaps once they have completed their unfinished business that they are able to actually pass on. If any of you have seen the movie Casper, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, uh, versus Casper. the idea that um, that maybe ghosts can't ever move on in Rowling's world. And she's never really confirmed how that works. It's vaguely explained with Nearly Headless Nick at the end of this book. Um, but a definitive answer is not really given. So that kind of is partly dependent on knowing how much Professor Binns can continue to learn and how much how stuck he is in his development. And, I mean, unfortunately, Pottermore is now done with Goblet of Fire. So mm-hmm. any other question we come up with, if Joe's listening... She might not be able to answer it. That's sad. <laughs> That's sad. We've still got time. We've still got time. There's a still bit. There's still some books left. <laughs> no, no, right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and our next comment comes from uh, Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw, who says, I think there is a connection between Arthur's co-worker and Professor Binz's comment, because Harry, Ron, and Hermione end up living in Perkins's, Perkins's tent in Deathly Hallows. Well, I think the only reason Professor Binns called Harry Perkins is because he is old, forgetful, and really not very invested in his students. He doesn't even notice when they talk and pass notes to his entire class. His focus is on the subject matter. I think it is, in a sense, an Easter egg for readers. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are going to go through a lot in that tent. The events that take place in and around that tent will stay with and define Harry for the rest of his life. To me, this is just an early reference to that, Already, Harry is starting to be associated with these events, even if just by the name of the person whose tent will keep him safe and give him shelter for his journey. How about that theory, huh? I dig it. I like it. That's so interesting. (laughs) I felt that was a pretty fun theory to read just because, as everybody was mentioning with the Mark Evans thing, this, I think, is definitely in line with that level of theorizing (laughs) that we... uh, haven't had in a very long time in regards to Harry Potter. Personally, I do think it is... A, I, I, I would love to think this is actually the case. Um, and I know Rowling doesn't do a lot of things for no reason. But she did admit that Mark Evans was a mistake on her part. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to wonder if Perkins wasn't the same thing. Because I don't, you know... We don't... Do we know how much of Hallows she would have had plotted out by this point? Ooh. I don't know. I guess it depends on how far ahead she wrote, right? Yeah. Because um, we're, pa- we're past the three-year hurdle between I, Goblet and Order. I doubt she would have n- no, like picked out whose tent they were going to use. Mm. Well, see, and, and that's interesting because the tent is such a prominent piece of Goblet to come back. So was it, our, was it being put there for foreshadowing when it was put there? Or did she think back to it when she was writing Hallows and say, oh, yeah, I already have a tent they can use? I would say that's the more likely option. Yeah, that seems, that like, personally. A, that seems like a very small detail to have planned out that far in right. advance. Definitely. I think I would be in agreement with that. And yeah. our last comment from Laura Albert definitely is in agreement with that. Laura says, Harry is not the only student whose name Bins gets incorrect. In Chamber of Secrets, he also calls Seamus Mr. O'Flaherty, Parvati Miss Pennyfeather, and Hermione Miss Grant. I think Professor Binns just doesn't pay enough attention or care enough to remember everyone's or anyone's name. 
Also, isn't he supposed to be old? Like, <laughs> that he was old the day he died? So it could be that he has trouble remembering things in general due to age or possibly Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Oh, and I believe it's not related to Perkins, who works with Arthur in the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office. Just coincidence. Um, a lot of a, a few comments actually did note that Professor Binns was actually elderly when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was already pro- possibly losing his memory and couldn't really keep track of students to begin with. I just like how all the names that Binns use um, vaguely sound like Bond people, <laughs> like people you would find in the Bond series. <laughs> you know, like Penny Feather and O'Flaherty uh, and all that. I don't know. They sound very cinematic, I guess. Well, and I, that's why I always figured that this is more the case than perhaps it being a reference or it being a reference to Perkins and like the actual Perkins being in a past class because the names that Benz uses on the students aren't like, they're not close to their names, but they're not that far away. Mm -hmm. Um, Grant is not far from Granger. I imagine if Benz really is that forgetful, Penny Feather is a lot easier to say and pronounce than Parvati. And Mr. O'Flaherty, I mean, for shame, is like, hey, look, here's an Irish name. Right, right. <laughs> there's an F we'll in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And so. I think this comment kind of harkens back to the first one where, like, the poss- I really like the possibility that he can only remember the names that, like, when he was alive. So mm-hmm. these could have been names of his, like, maybe his last set of students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just- do sound a little antiquated, don't they, in mm-hmm. their names? They mm-hmm. do. So perhaps he's just using them as placeholders because he doesn't actually know his students' names anymore. Oh. And pe- people did point out that he does take role at the beginning of his class, as all Hogwarts teachers apparently do. But if we are going with the theory that Bins can't remember anything other than perhaps what he teaches strictly, um, then I suppose it would work that he wouldn't be able to remember or care to remember their names. At least the first letter is right. Yeah. Maybe yeah, the students he's... have just learned what they call him by now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was yeah. thinking, like, what if he always calls the role by a, a wrong name and just, like, the first <laughs> day of class, everyone gets, like, their token fake name. <laughs> well, it does certainly work out very well for the plot, doesn't it, whenever they do need to get away from class, and Binz's class is the easiest one to skive off of. Yeah. Right. So... But That's I wanted true. to make sure and shout out to all of the rest of you who left amazing comments. There was actually a lot of thoughtful input on this particular question of the week from KCL, Diskid, Elise Roberts, Faye Hazel, Feathersickle7662, Ginny Weasley002, Hufflepug, I Got Transfigured Into a Rhubarb, Leslie Lovegood, <laughs> Mama Slytherin, She Flew Like a Madman, Snidget Phoenix, Spinner's End, and Supreme Mugwump. You all had a, a lot of really great things to say about Professor Binns and ghosts in general. If you would like to join in on that discussion, it's never too late just because we've read out the answers to the podcast question of the week. Make sure and check out the main Alohomora site and contribute your own thoughts. And I wanted to say that um, a lot of people came up to at least me at LeakyCon and were um, complimenting our listeners on your amazing usernames. <laughs> so... Just know that everybody else notices how great they are, too. We certainly Uh, have the best across the... I'm going to say the internet, because... It's great. It's great. Fantastic. I I think... Because I saw a few new... uh, Quite a few new people this week on the site. Welcome, by the way. But I think that with all the wonderful usernames we already have, that just pushes everybody to make even more creative (laughs) ones when they stop by. So... Just a forum shout-out. There's actually a... There's a 
conversation going on where people are explaining their usernames, so some people should go on there and explain why they chose their usernames, because I'd be very interested to find that out. Where, where is that one? I need to find um, that. Is that in the, I think the Great it's in Hall? the Great Hall. It's been a while since I've looked at that one, but it's somewhere in there. Mine's Why mine is Alleywood is on there, if anyone's interested. But. <laughs> and I guess with that, we should jump into this week's chapter. Chapter 18! Dumbledore's Army. This is about um, almost halfway through the book. You say like three or two-fifths through, whatever. Anyway, so the last chapter left us off with Umbridge almost catching Sirius in the Gryffindor um, common room fire. And of course, Hermione then comes to realize that she is probably, most likely, reading Harry's mail. And that's how she knew where Sirius would be that night, um, you know, based off the fact that Hedwig showed up in that last chapter in um, History of Magic with her feathers all ruffled. And um, in this chapter, in, well, hold on, I'm losing myself. The last chapter was the number, Educational Decree number 24, which, of course, banned all organizations and the like. In this chapter, Gryffindor Quidditch practice resumes and amidst piles and piles of homework, Dobby helps Harry find a meeting place for the freshly named Dumbledore's army. So first thing I wanted to bring up here is there was discussion with Sirius in the last chapter about Dumbledore's army. And it's brought up again in this chapter and it's really focused on Hermione here. She's thinking about Sirius's reaction to Dumbledore's army and is it a good idea? You know, she thought it was a good idea, but now that Sirius thinks it's a good idea, she's not really sure. And I'm wondering if you guys think that her reaction is warranted and would Sirius kind of ever promote something that might actually put Harry in real danger? Yes, 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 yes. Guys, what makes you say that so confidently? We have no evidence of that in this series. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think the one mistake Hermione made was mentioning it to Harry. I oh, think yeah. she should have I think she should have kept that to herself or talked to Ron about it, but not Harry. Um because I'm sure Ron could have talked her out of it anyway, but I do think her concerns are very valid absolutely how would you guys feel about it if you were i guess in their situation if you were part of that group oh she definitely has reasons i mean the last time they talked to Sirius, what did he say you're less like james than i thought so mm -hmm. maybe Sirius. if i was hermione i'd be thinking he's trying to push him to be more like james mm -hmm. in some way well, and yeah, the last time they talked, Sirius was like, "I'll just come pop by the village, and we'll just have a nice little <laughs> hangout. We'll go, we'll go, you know, we'll go to Honeydukes. It'll be fun." And, and and they're literally like, "Hey, no, Lucius Malfoy saw you on the platform, kind of dangerous." And he's like, "Oh, you guys are no fun." <laughs> and then, yeah, I think with that in mind, because I think that's exactly what Hermione is thinking about um, when she has this anxiety. Uh, but again, I, I, at the same time, I think the biggest issue and why I think it's bad that she mentioned it to Harry is because she put him through a lot to get him to commit to this. Yeah. Um, 
She's basically put him on show, and she, I know she didn't mean to, but, you know, this is another one of those Hermione moments where she's brilliant but stupid. Um, she's kind of not really examining the social aspect of this, and perhaps the the men, Harry's mental stability. Um, I, to, to go back on such a big decision, even if it's just a little bit, is not is not wise considering Harry's current emotional state. Do you think she, I mean, you mentioned a little bit the whole Sirius showing up. Do you think she's worried about him at all? That if they move forward with this, that he might actually do something and show up? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think that's like, if I was in Hermione's place, that's something to be like internally wary of. And I mm-hmm. that's why I agree with um, Michael that she should have kept it to herself. She should have used like this as an opportunity to like check herself um, and not going too far and also being like, I've got to make sure Harry doesn't take it too far, but I can't say anything now because we're just starting this. We're all in. We can't have these doubts right now. I don't know. Nec- and just kind of to go off that, I don't necessarily think Sirius would do anything to directly put Harry in danger because I think he understands that enough, but I think he indirectly puts Harry in danger a lot just mm-hmm. because he thinks he can catch up or keep up with it all. Well, I was just going to say we had mentioned, too, previously that when Sirius talks to them about forming the DA, um, Mm -hmm. he very enthusiastically says, how about using the Shrieking Shack? And they're like, no, we can't. And then he gets upset because and they feel Harry feels he's upset because he wants to be involved in the planning, that he wants to have some part in this because he doesn't get to be a part of the Order of the Phoenix, really, other than sitting quietly and so now here's a, another way for him to perhaps live vicariously. Um, mm. So I think there's, de- again, I think there's definitely the chance that Sirius could get involved. And I think I think it's very wise of Hermione to be wary. I just think she should have been a little more careful about how she phrased it to Harry, if talking to him about it at all. Ooh, do you think Sirius would have shown up if they had decided to use the Shrieking Shack? Do you think he brought that up oh boy. in the hope that they would and he could get there? <laughs> I'd say that's possible. It's a possibility, yeah. I'd say so. Good job they didn't do that then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's not exactly a um, rational thinker, really. That serious black. Um, Speaking of rational thoughts, I'm just kidding. The the (laughs) next thing I wanted to um, kind of discuss here, not even really discuss, just kind of point out, is the fact that in this chapter, um, Harry kind of, realizes finally that the things that he is feeling through Voldemort isn't necessarily um I think Ron says you're reading you knew whose mind and Harry's like no it's kind of more like his mood and I remember that this bit was the first bit of evidence that was called upon when the whole Harry is a horcrux theory came to be in the next book um and I thought it was just nice to kind of you know point it out and obviously it's getting stronger Mm -hmm. now that Voldemort has his body back and all of that. Um, how crappy would that be? I don't know. <laughs> to feel somebody else's emotions, especially if they're completely different than you? I don't know. No thanks. No, th- it, this section is really interesting to look back on retroactively, knowing what we know now. Mm-hmm. Um, because Harry is pretty much exactly describing how a Horcrux operates, and he doesn't even realize what he's talking about. Um, cause it's funny to think that when we first read it, it was super vague and it was like, what's even going on here? Why is this happening the way it is? And Harry's 
it, looking back on it now, knowing what we know, Harry's essentially laid it all out, almost to a T. So maybe she had more of Deathly Hallows planned out at this point than we think. Um, yeah, I think she at least had to yeah. have the overall Horcrux story planned yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Probably not the name of the person whose tent they borrowed, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we know, too, and um, I, I, I'm trying to think of this specific example, and I can't, but I know back when we were, and before I was even on the show, when you guys were examining, you know, Sorcerer's Stone through Goblet, but more maybe more Sorcerer through Prisoner, there were a few kind of things about kind of Horcrux stuff that seems slightly inconsistent with what she's developed. Um, I guess the big one would be, I think it's in Goblet when Harry has the dream where he's riding the owl and we were all kind of like, why is he riding the owl? How does that work? Like, shouldn't he be seeing it through like Nagini or, or Voldemort, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was kind of an anomaly that we were like, Oh, this doesn't quite work with how she structured Horcruxes. But I think here, that that's how a horcrux works is i would say definitely based on how harry describes it has definitely been fully fleshed out by now yeah i agree so moving on to the kind of bulk of the chapter here harry is staying up late in the uh, common room trying to get homework done and he drifts off to sleep and oh guess who shows up his favorite house elf dobby yay, <laughs> yay i know i was super happy um that he's back here because I love Dobby, special place. But anyway, um, you know, Dobby expresses that he really wishes that he could help Harry because Harry freed him and Dobby is so happy now um, with his like 95 hats on his head, which <laughs> is just, that makes me so happy thinking about that. I love it. Um, and Harry says, you know what? Actually, you can help me. I need a place where 28 people can practice defense against the dark arts. And of course, Dobby knows immediately where he should go. And he tells him about the room, um, the come and go room or the room of requirement. And he mentions that he has hidden butterbeer bottles in there before, you know, because poor drunk little uh, Winky. Um, <laughs> and that all the house elves know about it because that's where he heard about it from. So first question how do they know about it? And what exactly do they use it for? Do they have like little mixers in there to get to know each other? Like what, what are they doing in there? Hmm. Well, that's, gosh, that's a tough one. Cause the house of the house elves, other than the instance of Winky's butterbeer, you wouldn't think house elves really have anything to hide. Right. Any secrets. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. why I'd like to think it's something fun. <laughs> but I mean, to house elves have fun. I Maybe they the find question. cleaning supplies and <clears throat> silverware in there when they need extra. <laughs> but oh, that begs the question that, you know, I think I talked about this or we talked about this actually at Leaky with somebody is that Bilch supposedly cleans the castle. Mm -hmm. So he would be the one finding cleaning supplies. I think it's even mentioned in here. It builds, oh, yeah. finds cleaning. Yeah, but um, so I don't know. It's just kind of a mystery to me. I guess house elves are, if we equate them to the slaves, mm -hmm. you know, which is what they've been paralleled to many times. They kind of know all the secrets of the place that they live, right? That mm. makes sense. Well, and I guess the only other canon thing I can think of is that house elf magic supersedes wizard magic in a lot of ways. Mm. Um. 
their magic is very different from wizard magic and they can break rules, um, including operating in places they shouldn't be allowed to operate, like Hogwarts. Uh, so, I guess in theory... I mean, I even thought in my head for a moment if house elves, you know, how the Room of Requirement is not always accessible uh, accessible to everybody, but maybe the thought that the Room of Requirement is just a room to the house elves, like maybe they see it all the time, um, and it's not something that's barred off from them. I, I don't think that would work with what we know of it, but um, who knows? Maybe there's something about their magic that can get around the room's enchantments. And they probably don't have a big reason for being up there that often as it is, right? Like, even if they know about the room, since they are workers of the school, it's not like they get to just leisurely stroll around. I mean, the students <laughs> never see <laughs> right. them anyway, right? So right. maybe for birthdays, they get to chill in it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe because they're so determined, because, you know, their greatest, most house elf, sans Dobby, is their, their greatest wish want or need is to clean everything maybe that's maybe the room shows itself to them because it's like well you have to clean me too because i'm one (laughs) of the rooms (laughs) so but then that begs the question what version of the room do they see do they see that big ass room with all the stuff hidden in it Mm. because that is one hell of a room to clean (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh maybe that's why all the things are in such nice aisles Maybe, maybe. (laughs) I guess uh, that's kind of a good transition to my next question, which is, um, how exactly does the Room of Requirement work? Okay, not necessarily the magic behind bringing the room and, you know, what you need, whatever. But in this chapter, Harry mentions the old faux glass, which he says he was pretty sure was sitting in fake Moody's office the year before. So I guess that kind of got me thinking about when somebody walks by the room... And, you know, say in this case, they're looking for a place to fight, a place to practice. And then certain things show up. Are those things already in the room? Or are they kind of conjured out of whatever by the room? Because you know that room that has all the hidden things in it. Yeah. Maybe it can only draw from that room. And that's how it, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um populates or supplies what the user or the seeker needs so rather than perhaps the implied idea that we get from the books that the thing these objects are just popping up out of nowhere Mm -hmm. that the room is actually pulling from the other version of the room yeah or maybe that's like not necessarily because i guess it's under the assumption that that is a room of things that have been hidden over the years maybe that's like the master room Uh, i mean i don't know i'm just throwing it out there i guess Discuss how it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense because when Harry finds the diadem later, it's obviously not just the diadem. There's a ton of other stuff. So I think something like this is probably likely. That could also explain why. I've always wondered why in the seventh one, when they walk into the room and Neville and everyone's been living in there, why they had hammocks instead of regular beds. So maybe the room didn't have real beds. So it supplied the closest thing, which would be hammocks, which you could conceivably bring into that room better than I well, And isn't it mentioned, I'm just looking at the the page here, it's mentioned that the faux glass that they use is cracked. Mm-hmm. It's not a fresh, brand new, spanking new faux glass. It could even be the faux glass that was left over from Moody. Um, so 
in that way, yeah, I suppose it would imply that it could, but in a way, to me, that's breaking the rules of the, like, the, that would be the room, in a way, breaking its own rules, because that room, its express purpose is to hide things, so if somebody came into a different variant of the room, like, if if we're going by that logic, then couldn't have Snape in book six stepped into a different version of the room and then said, give me my potions book, and it would have popped up right in front of him? No, because he would have had to... Um, no, I don't think so. I, because I think he would have had to go into the room thinking about something that... I don't know. Maybe it has to do with when you go hide something in the room. Because I, if I remember correctly, when Harry goes to hide the potions book, he's thinking, I need a place to hide my book, not just store my book or something like that. So maybe it mm-hmm. it recognizes if an object is trying to actually be hidden instead of just put somewhere. Stored, right. But see, then that's confusing to me because then why would it go into that part of... Like, why would it go into that variant of the room if we're saying that the room also pulls from that pool of stuff to utilize in other rooms. like But it doesn't necessarily, I mean, for all we know, the Half-Blood Prince's book is sitting. Wait, where is the Half-Blood Prince's book right now? It's in a cupboard. In the store That's in the cupboard, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Not in the room of requirement right now. Right. Right, okay. Yeah, the, I, I think the, the you know hopefully the room of requirement is something we'll get explained on Pottermore a little more. I don't want it all to be given away because it's kind of fun the way it is. Yeah, that's a tough one because it does have like if you get into that too much, you can you can run into a lot of inconsistent rules of how it works. But I think that's kind of the the joy and the magic about that room mm-hmm. is that maybe there are no rules. I don't know. Yeah. I just thought it was. I just thought the mention of the faux glass was really telling and very interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I there didn't... are keepers, like there are creatures that keep the objects <laughs> and just like shuffle them around. And there's a whole <laughs> other layer. There's house elves in there. I think because... this is just because I finished reading a book where there's like epic fantasy and there's like different layers <laughs> of a world. So maybe I'm just thinking too hard here. But that would well, be cool. And... Not to jump too far ahead and get too into analysis of that, but when, correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't, as much as I've read the series, I haven't read Deathly Hallows as much as the others. Because they ask for food because they're hungry, the room can't produce food because of Gamp's Law, correct? Yes. So it gives them the passage to the hog's head. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. it can't actually give them food. So by that logic, the room at least follows Gamp's Law. So we know that. To right. some extent, it does have rules placed upon it. Plus, I mean, mm. I guess if you go with the, it can only pull from what's in the room. There's probably no food ever hidden in yeah. that room. Or if it mm-hmm. is, it goes bad. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the ghosts eat it, right? <laughs> 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 I'll be very interested to hear what the listeners think about this. I think this is a, a good topic. Mm-hmm. Good discussion. Um, okay, and the, the last thing I wanted to bring up here is once they finally get into kind of their first DA lesson, Harry is like, all right, so we're going to start off really simple here, and we are going to do Expelliarmus. And everybody, and was it, was Zachary it Zachariah Smith? Smith? Of course it was. He's like, what? He's like, come on. Oh, please. This isn't going <laughs> to help us. And Harry's like, um, excuse me. 
back off. This <laughs> saved my life, fool. Okay. So, <laughs> so they start, um, you know, with the Expelliarmus and people, shoddy, shoddy spell work, really bad spell work. And I thought it was funny that all of the kind of reactions that were happening to the bad spells. So, like, there are books flying off the shelves, which I guess is legitimate since it's a disarming spell. But Cho caught Marietta's sleeve on fire. <laughs> like, how is that a valid, I guess, reaction? To, I mean, okay, sure, she was pronouncing it incorrectly, but still. Harry, this is your first sign. Turn <laughs> right? away now while you can. Right. Um I just thought that all the kind of different reactions um, to this were pretty funny. And Allie, didn't you have something yeah, you wanted to bring up about this? I was just going to say, I think it's so interesting that Harry mentions that Expelliarmus saved his life when the reason it saved his life was not because he disarmed Voldemort, but because of the twin cores. So mm-hmm. honestly, the spell almost didn't help him at all. It was just the mm. fact that the twin cores and they both shot spells at each other. Yep. So. Yeah. I've that's the reason I've pretty much almost always had a problem with Harry championing championing <laughs> Expelliarmus and why I completely agree with Lupin later on in the series when he's like, "Hey, stop using that spell. Voldemort's going to figure you out." And it's it, it, it cuz Harry is oddly enough, Harry seems to understand cuz Dumbledore explains to him essentially how the twin course work as best he can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Harry knows that that's what what's going on. But he just seems to favor Expelliarmus, even though it's not necessary. I mean, in theory, if he cast any combative spell at Voldemort, it would have the same effect, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, his his choice spell could be Terran Telegra or... <laughs> that was totally Rick- the one I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> so, and it would still do the same thing. Yeah, he's just... He's a little... Harry's a little headstrong about Expelliarmus. Uh, he's oddly protective of Expelliarmus. He's like his yeah. child. Maybe. <laughs> Do you think he grows out of it as he gets older? I would hope so. Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe. Still using it at the Quidditch World Cup. Oh, well, gosh. like, as he becomes an Auror and everything, you know, if that's, like, his go-to spell still, it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> he totally botches his first raid while an Auror <laughs> using Expelliarmus, and he gets chastised for it later. <laughs> I mean, obviously... Expelliarmus does it does seem like a logical spell because it and we've talked about this too in the past the possibility that Harry is some kind of champion for nonviolence because he actively chooses spells like Expelliarmus he chooses to disarm before he attacks that's true um so and that's what he's teaching them he's teaching them actually uh, a form of wand combat that is actually not aggressive initially um, he's actually trying to disarm the opponent, uh, which is really interesting that he takes that approach, considering what he's told them they're up against. Yeah. Um, rather than going for the attack, he would rather play it safe and take the weapon away. I just had a thought yeah. as well. This is kind of Harry learning to be a teacher on the job. Mm-hmm. Is Do we think he might just be copying what he first learned? Because the first thing they learn in the Dueling Club in the second book is this spell. So maybe he's just, this is how he's seen it done. So this is how he's trying to model how he teaches them. That's actually <clears throat> kind of leads into what I'm thinking of for the question of the week. So. <laughs> well, that's a perfect transition because that's the end of the chapter. 
So, with that perfect segue into the podcast question of the week, uh, thank you to Allie. Thank you very much, Allie, for inspiring um, a part of this question. Uh, the question I'm going to ask is in relation to uh, Harry teaching the DA. And the question is, Daniel Radcliffe stated that for the production of Order of the Phoenix, he had input into Harry's wardrobe for the Dumbledore's army scenes. He cited that David Thewlis's costumes in Prisoner, specifically the sweaters he wore, were inspiration. With this in mind, as well as how Harry is elected leader by the members of the DA, where does Harry draw inspiration for his teaching styles from? What makes him qualified to instruct other students in defensive magic? We would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you have some answers for us, head over to the Alohomora main site and check out the podcast question of the week post. And we want to take a moment to thank Allie for joining us again on Alohomora. Thanks for stopping by. Anytime. Thanks for having me on again. I love it. And if any of you listeners out there want to be a guest on the show, just like Allie, to find out how you can do that, head over to the B on the show page at alohamora.mugglenet.com. You don't need any sort of fancy equipment, um, and even just a pair of Apple headphones with a little microphone on them will do will do you good. So head over, check it out, send in your audition, and you could be on an upcoming episode of Alohamora. And in the meantime, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Alohomora, just like Dumbledore's Army, we are very easy to get in contact with. We don't have any enchanted galleons, but what we do have is a Twitter. Uh, you can tweet us at, at Alohomora MN. Uh, you can check out our Facebook, facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore, our Tumblr, MN Alohomora podcast. You can give us a call at 206 Go Albus, the proper number being 206 462. 5287. You, you can subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We always love to hear your thoughts on the show. Follow us on Snapchat at MN underscore Alohomora. And of course, we have our audio boo. Make sure and leave us a message directly on alohomora.mugglenet.com and it could be played here on the show. It's free and all you need is a microphone. We just ask that you please keep your message under 60 seconds to make sure it has a chance to get on the show. And, of course, we have the Alohomora store, which we are adding new things to all the time. We just added four new designs, and we actually have more on the way. Actually, I wanted to ask all the listeners out there, they're going to be offering posters in the next month. So I want to know what posters you guys would want, if posters are something you'd be interested in. And, of course, you know, go check it out. There's sales going on all the time, so be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you are aware of those sales. And, of course, the ringtones as well. They are free and available at alohamora.mugglenet.com. Also, make sure to check out our smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide and prices will vary. It includes things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and much more. So definitely check that out. You can find out more information on our website. And that is going to do it for this week's episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 96 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Dumbledore's army! Rah! <laughs> <laughs> well, if Umbridge doesn't know, now she knows. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>